Well, good morning, everybody, and my apologies I'm not with you this morning. I'd love to be, but something's come up in my family that you've probably heard that means I can't be with you this morning, although I will be on Zoom this evening. Normal service will be resumed. Thank you for your grace in letting me do this by video instead. We're looking at chapter 15, verses 1 to 21 this morning, and it's a fascinating passage. There's so much in it, but all I want to get out of it is just something about how to argue properly how to argue gracefully, how to argue in a Christian fashion. Because I think this first important council of the Christian church teaches us all kinds of lessons about that. Here's a place where another important conference took place. It was a short one. It was in a field in northern France, just north of Paris, in the forest of Compiègne. And there, uh, in this railway carriage, representatives of the Germans and the Allies sat on the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918 and uh, declared an end to the First World War. Important thing. What it did was absolutely massive when you think about it. Because the First World War was responsible for, let me see, I've got the figures here, 20 million deaths. Almost one in six of the soldiers involved had died by 1918. That's 6,000 soldiers a day. It had cost to the UK alone £161,128,662,800. Even during September 1918, the cost of bullets and ammunition was £191,857,589.80. <laughs> I wonder what the 80 pence went on. But that massive cost just suddenly stopped. The guns fell silent. People went home. There was rejoicing in the streets just because of what happened in this railway carriage. And yet, you know, it was pretty unbelievably disorganised. The guy who typed out the declaration that they were going to sign of, of uh, the peace treaty was dragged from his, his uh, billet in the middle of the night. Uh, it was the last thing he had to do before leaving the army. And he put sheets of paper, uh, including carbon paper, so he could do copies, into his typewriter and wearily typed out this document. He had to do five copies. And when he pulled it out of the, out of the printer, the <laughs> typewriter, this is 1918 we're talking about, when he pulled it out, he found that he'd had some of the carbon paper in the wrong way. So some of the sheets were blank and some of them gave you a mirror image. It was gibberish, it made no sense. But there was no time to do a second copy. And so he just handed the sheets over to be signed, hoping that nobody would notice. And nobody did. They all signed it and went home. And when you look at the copies afterwards, some of it's just absolute gibberish, and yet they've solemnly signed it at the bottom. But that conference, mishandled though it was, oh, what happened to him? They never found out. He was just given a tot of rum and sent home, discharged from the army that morning. So whoosh, he went away and the First World War ended. C complete panic and, 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 and uh, chaos in the arrangement, but it was one of the most important conferences in the history of the world. Well, Acts 15 is another one. Because if this council in Jerusalem, where the Jews got together to say, can the Gentiles become Christians? If they do become Christians, do they have to keep all the laws of the Old Testament? That solved one of the biggest issues that would have stopped the gospel spreading throughout the entire Roman Empire. When we read it now, it might seem a bit disoriented. Lots of different voices speaking one after another. Then James saying, OK, I'll tell you what to do. And that's the end of it. But actually, it's very, very important. And we can learn a lot about how to get to God's solution 
by looking at the way that those people argued with one another. There were five voices involved. First of all, there were the people who'd started the argument. People from Judea who had heard about what Paul and Barnabas were doing with the Gentiles who thought, hey, hey, this is not right. You can't become a Christian without keeping the Jewish law. And so they were starting a counter-movement in their teaching to what Paul and Barnabas were doing. Clearly that could not be allowed to go on. And second, when the council was called and people came down to Jerusalem for the meeting, there were Pharisees who stood up. Do you remember? Uh, before the conference even started, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. That is our red line. It doesn't matter what anybody else says, that's what we're standing on. And they tried to jump the gun and force a decision. Third voice was Peter's. He spoke in the, in, in the meeting after there had been a lot of discussion and uh, said, listen, things have happened to me. And you know about them, you here in Jerusalem. You know how God sent me to Caesarea to talk to Cornelius and his family. I was petrified, a Jew speaking to a Roman household. And yet the Holy Spirit descended. And somehow God had chosen me to take the gospel to a Gentile audience. Me, I've always been a Jew and a, a devout, believing, proud Jew. And God showed me that what he's called clean, I shouldn't call unclean. You know about that. Surely this has got to feed into this argument as well. Why would we let people become Christians and then have to keep the, the, the whole law, which, let's face it, we Jews have never been able to keep right down through the ages of history. It's bananas. Then the fourth voice was Paul and Barnabas. And everybody fell silent when they simply told a story, the story of what God had done through them. The fifth voice, well, that's James at the end saying, Brothers, this is where we're going. This is what I think we ought to do. So let's look at those five voices very quickly because I think they give us, each of them, one principle of arguing well, which we need to remember in our Christian lives. First of all, the men from Judea then, the people who started the argument, they were teaching a completely different gospel from Paul because they were saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. In other words, it doesn't just depend on a free gift from God. It depends on something you do, something ceremonial as well. It's a bit like the Mormon version of Christianity. The Book of Mormon contains a passage in 2 Nephi, which sounds very like Ephesians chapter 2. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. But it changes it slightly. What does 2 Nephi say? It's this. For we know that it is by grace we are saved, after all we can do. And that little phrase at the end just perverts the whole gospel. It says, yes, God steps in and saves us by grace, through faith, but we have to live the right life first. We have to be baptised into the church. We have to keep certain rules, no tea, no coffee, that kind of thing. We have to go into the temple priesthood. We have to jump through all the hoops. And unless we do that, we're not going to reach exaltation, which is the Mormon version of salvation. And this is exactly what the Pharisees were saying. Yes, God saves you through his free grace. It's a free gift. But there's a few preconditions. There's a bit of small print. Now, let's be fair to the Mormons. I was glad to notice that over the last few years, they've started changing the view a little bit on 2 Nephi. And if you go to the Book of Mormon Study Notes dot blog, you'll find that they say this about this passage. What does it mean to be saved by grace after all we can do? 
Nephi clearly believed in working hard. He says so at the beginning of that verse, we labor diligently. But he also knew that salvation comes by the grace of God. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's a gift freely given to those who are willing to receive it. What can we do to receive it then? Nephi lists two actions we can take. One, believe in Christ. Two, be reconciled to God. So it's great to see the Mormons saying exactly what Paul and Barnabas were saying. There's nothing we have to do except accept it. It's a free gift from God. And listen, if you're not a Christian and you're listening to this, you, you, and it mystifies you as to how exactly you jump through the hoops to get into the kingdom of God, get this, there ain't no hoops. You don't have to jump through anything. You simply have to receive a free gift from God. But these Jewish teachers wouldn't listen to anybody else. They were Christians. They were definitely Christians. That, that is clear from the way that Acts 15 is written. But they'd put another clause in their faith, which was perverting the whole gospel. And it was all because they would not listen to the other side. I remember when I was a, a student, there's a little booklet that we used to use in evangelism all the time in universities. And it was written by John Stott, one of the greatest evangelists and most incredible Bible teachers of the 20th century. It was called Becoming a Christian. Very useful little booklet. But in my day at university, uh, the, the executive committee of our Christian Union became very, very Calvinistic. And they decided that this booklet was a perversion of the gospel. It wasn't the true gospel. It wasn't strict enough. And so they actually wrote a book uh, published by Banner of Truth Trust called The Grace of God in the Gospel, which just tried to tear John Stott apart. OK, the authors of this book later on went to become bishops and deans and people like that. They've had a fairly eminent career. You'll see the name of Tom Wright in there, for example. But at that point, they were just a bunch of young men who thought they knew better. They understood the gospel better than one of the greatest Bible teachers and evangelists whom God was using to save thousands of people at that time, week by week. And they just, they, because they had a good argument, they thought. They felt they could just rubbish his work and tear his booklet to shreds. God kept on using Becoming a Christian. Their book went out of print. Listen to the other side carefully before you start attacking. And so the rule we learn from this one is very simple. Proceed cautiously. Don't just jump into the attack like these guys from Judea were doing. Listen to the other side and see if there's any truth in what they're saying. So, the Pharisee Christians were the first group. Uh, well, sorry, no, the men from Judea were the first group. The second group were the Pharisee Christians. The people who tried to jump the gun in the conference. Listen, this is what we will go for. Here's an ultimatum which you must accept, otherwise we're out of here. And it was just because they were not prepared to entertain anything the other side said at all. When I first went to university, it's all about my university days this morning, um, this guy came to speak at the first meeting of our college Christian Union, St John's College. This is Keith Weston, uh, one of the leading Keswick speakers of his time. A man with a fantastic ministry at St Ebb's Church in Oxford, an evangelist who led hundreds and hundreds to Christ uh, every year in that church, and some of them became real leaders, especially in the Church of England today. And yet, you know, I came from a strict Brethren Church in Scotland, and I remember going to that meeting and sitting there thinking, well, what he's saying sounds all right, but I'm waiting for the heresy. He's an Anglican, so there must be something wrong with him. I'll just listen to this very critically and see that he says nothing wrong. 
And later on, when I understood more about the Christian heart of Keith Weston and the, the way in which God was using him so powerfully and the humility and the love and dedication of that guy, I was ashamed of myself. But it came from my background, just as these guys who came from a Pharisee background were shaped and conditioned by what they'd experienced so far not to listen to anything else. This is Eric Alexander. He was one of the greatest Bible teachers of the last century in the Church of Scotland, spoke at the Filey Christian Convention every year, and he, he was always packed out. He came to our Christian Union too, and uh, he spoke to, uh, to us on a Saturday night, and I'd never heard Bible teaching like it. It was just amazing. And my father got hold of some tapes of Eric Alexander, and one day he played a tape which was an incredible exposition of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to one of his strict brethren friends from South Wales. Now, I'm not knocking the brethren, but this guy came from a really, really restrictive, what we used to call tight background. And he didn't tell him who was preaching. And at the end of the tape, he said, what do you think of that, Sam? And Sam said, you know, it was really choice ministry, Alex. That was, oh, I couldn't fault a word of that. And my father said, yeah. And that's one of our church ministers in the Church of Scotland. And Sam said immediately, yeah, well, I did notice just one or two things that I wouldn't agree with and one or two things which where he went off a little bit. He just couldn't listen to it. He couldn't. Because he was hidebound in the mindset that said, I'm right and everybody else is wrong. So point two is very simple. Listen carefully. <laughs> you know, you may be convinced of your own argument, but listen to the other side anyway. When I was a student, here we go again, when I was a student, the charismatic movement was just becoming big all over Britain. And I remember... Um, going back from my first year at university, thinking, I've got to explore what I believe about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And that summer, through the long vacation, I read all kinds of books on all kinds of sides of the argument about the Holy Spirit and put together a document which I, I thought said exactly what I believed and what the scripture said about the Holy Spirit. It was basically dismissive of the charismatic movement, and I'd still stand by most of the theological conclusions I came to. But you know what, I started to find out over the next couple of years that my charismatic friends often had something I didn't have. And I didn't believe in this new experience called the baptism of the Spirit they were talking about. I didn't believe that speaking in tongues was a gateway into a better spiritual life, and I still believe those things. But I had to admit that their experience of God had somehow given them an intimacy with him, a boldness in talking to non-Christians, a determination to give everything for the gospel that I'd never experienced. And I began to realise that even if I disagreed with some of their theology, I needed the experience they had. Listen carefully to the other side. Third voice, that's Peter, isn't it? And Peter, after much discussion, stands up and says his piece. Why after much discussion? I mean, we know about Peter. He always jumped in with both feet, didn't he? He was always the first voice in the argument. He was always the one who was pushing himself to the front. Why did he wait so long? I think it's probably because of something that happened the year before. You read about it in Galatians chapter 2. You see, Peter was used by God to bring Cornelius and his family to faith. And he said at that point, I can see that God is no respecter of persons. He wants the... Gentiles, as well as the Jews, to believe, whoa, this is fantastic, this is blowing my tight Jewish mind. But he came to Antioch when Paul was there. And at first on his visit, he would 
share with the Gentiles in meals, social occasions, things like that. And then some guys arrived from Judea, the home of conservative Judaistic Christianity. And they were watching Peter. And so immediately, cowed by them, Peter went into preservation mode. Oh, I don't think I could eat with you people any longer. I, I, I don't think it's quite right to do what I've been doing. And so he backed away and became very Jewish again, excluding and hurting the Gentiles that he'd been perfect friends with. And Paul says, I withstood him to the face. I said to him, look, you're being a hypocrite. This shouldn't be happening. Either you believe in the free grace of God for everybody, or you believe it's just for Jews. Which one is it? And so Peter who clearly saw the sense in what Paul was, was saying on that occasion, had to back down. And so here I think he's determined to listen to the arguments before he says a word. <laughs> but then he does say what he's got to say. And it's, it's devastating. He said, look, you people in Jerusalem, you know about the Cornelius experience. You know who, how God... Jew from Galilee and sent me off to a bunch of pagans to tell them about the gospel. And you know what God did. So why would we want to make the gospel tougher? For the Gentiles, we've never been able to keep God's law, let's face it, right down through the Old Testament. Why should we put that same burden on them? And uh, Peter talks about his experience. He doesn't try to prove it from Scripture, he doesn't do anything like that. He just talks about what God has done through him. My old boss in Youth for Christ, Philip Vogel, always used to say this, A man with an argument can never defeat a man with an experience. That's absolutely true. You can have a watertight argument about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the last things, uh, election and, and, and predestination, all sorts of things. But unless it's based on experience, it's just a logical argument in your head. D.L. Moody, for instance, who was a great evangelist, used to bring many, many people to Christ in the 19th century, was once confronted by a man who said, I don't like the way you preach or the arguments you use. I don't like your methods, Mr. Moody. And Moody simply said, oh, that's interesting, what methods do you use? And the man said, oh, well, I, I don't preach, I, I don't do anything like that. And Moody simply said, well, you know, brother, I prefer the way I do it <laughs> to the way that you don't. And that's right, the job's got to be done. And sometimes to do the job, God picks people that we would never pick. I don't think I'd have got on with Moody. He was sometimes a bit pushy, he was difficult, he was a typical Chicago uh, um, person, that's, that's me being a bit racist there, but you know what I'm talking about, he was somebody who went like a bull at a gate, and God used that, and the, the, the work that Moody and Sankey did in the 19th century is led doing it, so he had the right to talk about it, because he'd been there, he had the experience, so here's a third principle, look for what God is doing. If you see Peter being used to bring Gentiles to faith, you've got to understand God wants the Gentiles and loves them just as much as he loves the Jews. So it goes on. Now we reach Paul and Barnabas, and this is a point at which the whole assembly falls silent while they listen to what Paul and Barnabas were saying. And they again spoke from experience. They'd been to Cyprus, they'd been to Pisidian Antioch, they'd been to Iconium. Remember the last few weeks? They'd been to Lystra, they'd been to Derbe. And in each of those things, places, wonderful things had happened. In Cyprus, they talked about the way in which the Roman proconsul, a Gentile, had come to faith, an eminent Gentile at that. In Pisidian Antioch, they planted a church amidst all sorts of controversy, but all who were appointed to eternal life believed. In Iconium, uh, God did miraculous signs and wonders 
through the apostles. And again, people came to faith, a church was planted. They went on to Lystra and there uh, they planted a church. They were stoned and uh, Paul was left as if he was dead. Yet a church was planted and seeing the bravery of the apostles, a young man called Timothy, watching him be rescued from the road, started to realise if this man believes all of this stuff and is prepared to go to this length for it, it must be true. And so Timothy, in the end, gives his life to Christian service. And there was Derby. The church began amid persecution there. But it's, it began and it survived. And it was made up of Gentiles as well as Jews. And so as Paul and Barnabas spoke about all of this, people became convinced that God was doing something different amongst the Gentiles. And it wasn't just the Jewish law. So, point four. Share what you've experienced. Tell them about what happened to you. If you're ever trying to share the gospel with somebody else, this is important, isn't it? Talk about, honestly, about what God has done in you. Don't just try to prove it from the scriptures. Don't do use them. And don't just try to give clever arguments about, I don't know, uh, whatever they don't understand, the evidence for miracles, the reliability of scripture. All of that stuff counts. But the important thing is, what's happened to you? Because in the end, that may carry more conviction than anything else. And if you're ever arguing with somebody who is a Christian, ask yourself, what in their experience has led them to the conclusions they've got? Because when you understand why somebody holds the convictions he does, you see them as a person and you start to understand the argument and the attractions of it a little bit more. Anyway, there's one more to go and we're out of time already. So who have we got? Well, finally, it's James, leader of the church in Jerusalem who stands up at the end and says, look, this is what we're going to do. And I think there are three things that James says which give us important principles about coming to a conclusion. First is learn from others. In verse 14, he says, Simon has described to us. And he goes back over the things that Peter has argued. And that's important. You know, many Bible teachers and people who have points of view to put across on the internet Bring it all out as if it's just their opinion, as if they've thought their way through to this position by themselves. No, we've all been taught by many teachers. We have a thousand instructors in Christ, as Paul once put it. And if you've got that many instructors, pay them credit. Show where you're coming from. Learn from other people and uh, help other people see the truth by referring to the people that you've learned it from. Second thing is, Look for scriptural support. In verse 15 he says, the prophets are in agreement with this. And he backs up his conclusion by interpreting the Old Testament. What does scripture really say? Because whatever you would prefer to believe, and whatever they would prefer to believe, the conclusion comes through what God has actually said. It might mean looking at scripture in a new way. That's what James was asking them to do here. But if you see it and it's really there, then you've got to go with that, haven't you? And the third thing was, make it clear what's God's direction and what's your opinion. James simply says in verse 19, it is my judgment that this is what we should do. In fact, the uh, recipe he gives them, the formula here, while it was a good one for going forward with, it did change. And we know that from what Paul says about meat offered to idols later on in his letters. It was only a provisional agreement to start things off. But it was important, and James is not saying, this came down on a cloud through the sky. This is the word of God and you can't go against this. God has revealed this to me in a special vision. No, none of that stuff. All he was saying was, look, 
looking at the evidence, listening to these voices of Christians who disagree, this is the conclusion I come to, and this is what, guys, we are going to do. <laughs> and so that's how to have a good argument. Fifth principle, keep a balance. So here we go. What are the five principles? Proceed cautiously. Don't assume you know what the other people believe before they get there. Second, listen carefully. See what you can agree with in what they're saying. Third is, where's it going? There we are. Third is look for what God is doing. See where God is at work in this situation. He works sometimes through surprising movements, through unexpected individuals. Don't limit the grace of God. Fourth, share what you've experienced. And that way people will understand where you're coming from. And fifth, keep a balance. Don't pretend that you're the one person in the entire history of Christianity who's stumbled across the truth because you're not and you ain't. And in that way, at the Council of Jerusalem, the Gospel went forward. In that way, in our lives, we can agree with one another sufficiently for God's work to go ahead and for us to live in the harmony, preserving the, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace that God wants us to have. Have a great week. God bless you. See you soon.